We've seen a lot of the winners of the Iowa caucus actually not go on to win the presidential nomination, particularly on the Republican side. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in U.S. news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello there. My name is Jared Monchin. I'm the director of research at the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney. And before we get started today, I want to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands we are on today and where the University of Sydney stands, and pay my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging. So today, I am very lucky to be joined by non-resident senior fellow Lester Munson. And he is not only an expert in all things DC, but he's seen so many sides of DC um, that he can really look at what's going on um, in in politics these days from a bunch of different angles. And we're really fortunate to have him aboard with us. But officially, I'll, I'll just clarify that he is a principal and managing director of the international practice at BGR Group, a leading government relations firm in DC. And he consults with governments, corporations, and advocacy groups. But in terms of his prior experience, he worked in the Senate. He worked in, in the Bush, George W. Bush administration and USAID. Um, and he is, I think most notably for me, a fellow Chicago Bulls fan, which has been suffering in the last uh, few decades, True. I should say, after our heyday. But before we get started, I just want to clarify less. One thing we like to do on our podcast is share a stat or a number that you think is important for the audience to be across. Do you have one um, you don't have to share at the top. We're going to share at the end. But are you ready to go to, to share that at the end? Yeah. All right. I'm ready. Excellent. So in the last couple of days, we have seen a lot of takes on Iowa. We saw a lot of takes about, you know, un, unprecedented snow and, and record level uh, colds and all sorts of candidates dropping out and all sorts of uh, live mics talking, giving candidates unvarnished takes on the Iowa caucuses. But could you maybe just quickly give your top line take on what just happened in Iowa and, and what we should take away from um, the last uh, few days? Well, Iowa is unusual in the American political system for a whole bunch of reasons. For one thing, it's a caucus. It's not an actual primary. And in a caucus, the voters get together all in one place at one time. They talk to each other. They kind of vote right in front of each other. It's not as quite as public as it used to be, but there's a lot of socializing involved. So there's a there's a more personal aspect to the caucus in Iowa. Also, Iowa's a, a relatively small state in the United States. It's very white. It's very conservative. It's very evangelical. It is not typical at all of many other states. And so as a result of that, we've seen a lot of the winners of the Iowa caucus actually not go on to win the presidential nomination, particularly on the Republican side. The last time that happened was 24 years ago when George W. Bush won the Iowa caucus in 20 in the year 2000 and also won the nomination. But normally it's some other person who is a, a little bit outside the mainstream who wins that caucus. Nevertheless, it's great politics. Uh, there's there's a lot of personality involved and it's not insignificant at all, but it's it's a mistake to read too much into the results from Iowa. Now, the results we do have, which compared to the Democratic results in the last Iowa caucuses, you have to be impressed by because uh, back in uh, in 2020, we didn't know the winner of the Democratic uh, Iowa caucuses for some days. 
Um, but we know the results now, and we know that Trump took it in a landslide. Um, do you think that's remarkable? Do you think, were you surprised by that outcome? Were you surprised by the margin of that outcome? What were you watching ahead of the Iowa caucuses? Well, I was watching to see if Nikki Haley would be able to surge past Ron DeSantis, who had campaigned heavily in Iowa. He bet his whole campaign on winning Iowa. And there was, there was talk that Nikki Haley would be able to push past him for second place. She didn't quite do that. She came within a couple points of him. She did have a strong showing, but she didn't get ahead of him. Neither one of them came close to Trump. Trump won a little bit more than half the vote. There's no doubt that's significant. But it's also significant that about half of the Iowa Republicans voted against Donald Trump. He was the nominee for the party the last two elections. He's a former president. He is relatively popular inside the party, but still half of Iowa Republicans voted against him. So I think on the one hand, it's a show of strength for Trump compared to the other candidates. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's still some weak spots for him. And he's got to do more to nail down broader support inside the party to be successful in the long run. Now, do you think in terms of looking at uh, like the top line takeaways from this, you, you mentioned before how Iowa is more white, more conservative, more evangelical, um, more rural. You would think that someone who in many ways was running to the right of Trump and DeSantis, that DeSantis would take Iowa, especially, you know, he also got the endorsement of the governor of Iowa. Um, why do you think he just was not as successful in Iowa? Especially because he, you know, he famously visited every county, all 99 counties twice, and he did everything the, the way you're supposed to, 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 to win Iowa. What went wrong for By him? By the way, that is a lot of work to go to all 99 <laughs> counties in Iowa. That is hard to do. Iowa's geographically pretty big. You're going to have to get on a plane and fly around all over the place for weeks to be able to do that. Uh, credit to DeSantis for making the effort, but there's one of the great mysteries of 2024 is going to be why, or of this this campaign cycle, it's going to be why DeSantis's campaign didn't take off. Came in with very high expectations. His numbers against Trump were pretty good about a year ago, but then when it actually came to voting on the ground in Iowa, voters who who should have liked him, as you pointed out, preferred Trump. It could be Trump is just more likable. He's more entertaining. People have a loyalty to people they've voted for in the past, and DeSantis had never run in Iowa before. There's, there's a bunch of possibilities here. I don't think we're ever really going to know the answer, but it is one of the great disappointments, I think, the DeSantis campaign not being more successful in Iowa. Now, do you think, especially with New Hampshire coming up very soon and DeSantis basically having not spent much time there, compared to Iowa, do you think that he is uh, going to be the next to drop out and that it will become really a two-person race between um, Trump and Haley? He's he's going to have a tough time staying in. Right now, it looks like it's neck and neck between Trump and Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Nikki Haley's got a real chance to pull off a win there. That could be a game changer. Uh, and DeSantis is probably going to finish way behind in the low single digits even in New Hampshire. It's hard to see how his campaign continues beyond that. But Trump may want him to. Trump may want to keep DeSantis in the campaign to kind of pull votes, anti-Trump votes away from Haley. So there could be some sort of backroom deal between those two. Who knows? Uh, but it's his campaign, I think, will be effectively over after New Hampshire. Now, with New Hampshire coming up, my question is, we have New Hampshire, then soon after we have South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state. If Nikki right. Haley doesn't win New Hampshire and doesn't win her home state of South Carolina, do you think her campaign is all put over? 
Uh, very likely. In fact, I think she has to win both New Hampshire and South Carolina in order to have a chance, because after South Carolina, uh, it's just a few days before Super Tuesday when they'll be voting in multiple states across the country. And you're really going to have to have a ton of momentum and a ton of new fundraising money to come in to be able to be competitive on Super Tuesday. So Nikki Haley's kind of got to do a, a slingshot here of a win in South, a win in New Hampshire than a surprise win in South Carolina, where right now she's behind by 30 points. Uh, she's going to have to scoop up all those DeSantis voters, persuade some a lot more Republican women to vote for her, eke out a big surprise win. And then she's got a she's got a fighting chance on Super Tuesday. This is this is at the end of the day, this is a real long shot, but it is a shot. Uh, she is not out of it yet. And Trump, you know, once he's he's got an opponent, if he can't kind of bring them down to earth the way he wants to, he may struggle with her. She's a woman. She's tough. She's been known to push back. She handled Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, you know, like a ninja. So she may have a real chance here to fight back against Trump. I think it's still a long shot, but it's it's going to be fun to watch. This game is not over. Now, in terms of like it not being over, a lot of people are saying this isn't even a race for the GOP nominate, nomination. This is a, a competition for who can be Trump's VP. How much do you think that's accurate? Do you think that Nikki Haley just wants to be Trump's VP and to extend this as long as possible so that he extends the olive branch so that he can not only stop the divisive primary, but also get the moderate female suburban voters that that he is uh, not as uh, good with as she is? My guess is she is not competing to be vice president. Mike Pence was Donald Trump's vice president. It didn't help him at all when he then, you know, he he ran this cycle, did not do well at all. Uh, so being the vice president of Trump is probably a dead end. And I don't, and I think Nikki Haley is smart enough to realize that she worked for him once. She was Trump's ambassador to the UN. She got out after a couple of years with her reputation intact and, and no mud on her heels. She did a great job. Uh, I think she's smart enough to not, not go back into Trump world knowing that anyone who's been associated with him in the past eight years has taken a real hit on their reputation. So then the the number one, in my view, the number one unknown is who is Trump's VP nominee? If if he is, as the polling strongly indicates, the GOP nominee, um, who do you think Trump goes to for uh, the uh, vice presidential position? Well, the governor of Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, also worked for Trump. She was his press secretary uh, early in his administration. She's an effective communicator. She's pretty good on TV. She's popular in her home state. She's she's kept her ties to Trump without being too close. She would be she would bring the evangelical vote with her. Her father, Mike Huckabee, who who actually won the Iowa primary years ago. Uh, and was a Baptist minister, has got real ties to that community. She's a she's a Southerner. She's got a little twang in her voice. She's She could be a real asset to Trump in a general election and really help drive out the, the Republican base that may be a little skeptical of him. Do you think that looking at the head-to-heads, that even with someone like Sarah Huckabee Sanders having um, a female VP, do you think that... Um, Maybe there's too much to those who say that um, Trump's strength in the GOP race is negative of his strength strength in the uh, general. Do you think that maybe we're just we're we're not focusing on the important aspect of this, which is the fact that 
Trump has such high unfavorables in the general election that he really does not look to have a, uh, a great pathway forward. He's very unpopular. Joe Biden is very unpopular. I think there's there's a there's a possibility here that Joe Biden has really been kind of tanking it for the last few months to give Donald Trump an edge in the Republican nomination. Joe Biden really wants Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. He beat him before. He thinks he can beat him again. Joe Biden does have the age problem, but when he gives a speech, he usually does just fine. Uh, so I think that even though both of them are unpopular, uh, they've both got a ton of baggage coming in with them. Joe Biden's in the pole position still. He's he's going to have a ton of money. He's going to have a very unified party behind him. He is going to um, he is going to have a, a juggernaut of a campaign. Maybe not at the very top, but everyone else very competent. They're going to have a lot of resources. They're going to be able to drive a message that Donald Trump is bad for America, bad for the world, bad for democracy. All of those things. They're going to drive it effectively. And I think at the end of the day, Joe Biden remains in the catbird seat if, in fact, Donald Trump is the nominee for Republicans. What exactly are you watching ahead of that? So we have, it's now January, and then we vote in early November. Um, so what are the the sort of main issues that you're looking at to really decide whether this election, is uh, how it's going to pan out? So you have uh, issues, whether it be immigration, or whether it be the economy, or foreign policy issues, what what do you think will be the most decisive issues uh, moving forward for the election? I'm I'm watching two things in particular. One is the, the court cases that Trump is dealing with, the four different criminal prosecutions. If one of those comes back with a guilty verdict before the election in November, that's a, that's a huge problem for him. The other thing I'm watching, and this is probably the most important thing, is the state of the U.S. economy. Uh, inflation has largely been necked back. It's about 3% right now. If the administration and the Fed can get that down to around 2% or a little bit above that, and things start to settle out, Americans, the, the unemployment rate is still very strong in the United States. All other economic indicators are pretty good. And if Joe Biden can kind of turn around that impression that American voters have of his handling of the economy, He's going to be in an even stronger position come November. And it, it does seem to be lining up that way for him. You don't really know what's going to happen in the next few months. But from, from here, it looks like he's in a pretty strong position. And Trump is only going to be hurt in the general election by these various prosecutions going on against him. Yeah. Can, can you just unpack that for me? So those prosecutions, do you think that, you know, we, we've seen that the on the Republican side that the prosecution seemed to have only galvanized supporters in it? gotten the his GOP um, uh, alternatives to reluctantly praise him and talk about the weaponized um, Justice Department and weaponized course of law, et cetera, or politicized uh, course of law. But do you think that it actually these cases will actually hurt him in the general? Do you think that the independent voters or the, the swing voters are, are going to really be affected by um, these uh, uh, case outcomes? So the, the Biden administration, you know, which is the author of several of the prosecutions against Donald Trump, the attorney general has decided to bring uh, a couple of cases against the former president. This was a, a brilliant political move by President Biden, because those prosecutions, as you pointed out, help Trump in the primary and they hurt him in the general. This is, this is what Dem Democrats have played this whole issue very smart for the last few years. 
They have done things in the campaign and in the legal system to help Trump and other MAGA candidates win in primaries. They've even spent campaign dollars to help the more Trump-like candidates in Senate races and House races. They've been very effective at this. It's very Machiavellian. It is very, uh, you know, the ethics are a little bit questionable, but you can't deny that it's been very effective. These prosecutions have the same impact as if the DNC had dumped a bunch of money in Donald Trump's campaign coffers and helped him have a bigger advertising budget. Him going into those courtrooms with the dour face, yelling at the judge, those things help him with Republicans, and they're going to kill him in the general election because most independent voters or, um, you know, voters who aren't very partisan are going to be disgusted by the whole thing and not want to have anything to do with someone with that kind of stain on them. So it's been a very smart tactic, I think, by the Biden administration. So you're saying you, you think it's a deliberate ploy by the Justice you, the Justice Department, because you have, I think, four cases, right? You have one in New York, one in Georgia, and then two federal cases, one in D.C., the other in Florida. So you're saying that the two federal cases is a deliberate um, move by the Biden administration's Justice Department to um, to to play out the way it has? Or political awareness was factored into that? Yeah, there's the Department of Justice has brought cases against Trump in D.C. and in Florida uh, over the the, uh, the classified docs issue. I mean, the administration will say that President Biden gave no instructions to the attorney general that it was the attorney general's decision. That's fine. They can say that in public. In reality, President Biden appointed Merrick Garland to be the attorney general. Merrick Garland made the decision to make those prosecutions. So it is it is effectively the Biden administration that has decided to prosecute the former president. No matter how they try to spin it or characterize it, that is what is happening. By the way, that's not a commentary on the merits of the cases, particularly on the classified documents case in Florida. It does look like Trump, uh, at least to my amateur opinion and non-lawyer opinion, is very guilty of having done something wrong. Um, on the election case, uh, on the January 6th case in D.C., I think it's uh, a much more nuanced question as to exactly what the president's role was. But in at least one of those cases, he does have a real legal problem. So it's not just, I'm not judging the cases on those merits per se. I'm just saying politically, the author here is in fact the Biden administration. And I think it's, I do think it's a little naive not to recognize that. Totally. Okay. Now, in terms of like looking at the swing states, um, everyone you know talks about how 2016 was decided by what 75,000 votes spread across a few states, and 2020 was decided the presidential election was decided by less than 45,000 votes spread across a few states, um, and because of the electoral college that Biden you know one handedly in the popular vote, but that's uh, that's uh, unimportant because it, the electoral college decides this. What are the states you're watching? And so what, and in addition, what are the issues you're watching in those states? Some people will say, you know, the way that Biden has championed Israel has really hurt Biden in Michigan, where there's a significant Arab American population. Do you think that is significant moving forward? Or like, do you think Biden changes tax somehow to deal with issues in these states? Biden, Biden does have issues with the Arab American population. He's got some issues with progressives. Generally, the younger voters are not as enamored as, of him as the as older Democrats. I think those things fall away as we get closer to the election and the and the the Democratic machinery, the Democratic campaign machinery, very good at kind of shoring up the coalition in times of crisis. They've been through this exercise before. They know how to talk to each other. They know that 
sometimes the coalition gets a little clunky and the issues don't uh, play well across all the groups. They know how to deal with those things and they can mitigate a lot of that damage. Not to say there isn't some damage, but they'll do a good job of mitigating a lot of that. What I'm watching is the abortion issue in a place like Ohio. Uh, Ohio, a very red state, but also has voted pro-choice recently. Uh, the governor there, who's a Republican, has actually ended up being fairly moderate on a lot of social issues. Uh, so there's there's a long way to go here on what um, what exactly the swing states are going to be, what the issues are there. And then you got to overlay Senate races on top of them. There's going to be a Senate race in Ohio. Sherrod Brown, who's very much on the left, um, is running for re-election. He will be a very strong candidate and is likely to be re-elected no matter who the Republicans run against him. And yet Donald Trump is favored to win that state. Uh, in Montana, uh, there's a Democratic incumbent, John Tester, who is definitely to the left of the Montana electorate. He's a very good campaigner. He's got a crew cut. Should always be uh, careful of counting out a Democrat with a crew cut. I've always said that. Uh, and John Tester, he will he will also very likely win re-election in a state that could go for Trump. So, do those Senate races mitigate some of Trump's advantages? And do uh, weaker Democratic candidates in other places maybe hurt Biden's chances in those places? It's still going to be a very close election, as you point out. It's the Electoral College that matters. Even if Biden wins the general by four or five percentage points, it could still be neck and neck in the Electoral College where uh, Biden or Trump wins by just one state. And so those uh, those handful of states, there's likely to be five or six that are the real swings at the end of the day. There's going to be a ton of money spent in Georgia, uh, Ohio, Wisconsin, Michigan, for sure, maybe North Carolina. Uh, so we'll we'll see where the, the the campaigns invest, but that's going to be where the battle is for the for the November election. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable when you look at the polling in those swing states. As you said, um, Biden might be underwater in those swing states um, polling, but then you look at the actual elections in in that have occurred recently, you know, off-cycle elections and so forth, and it seems like the Democrats just can't stop winning. Um, and I, it it reminds me of. Um, the George W. Bush administration and, and the way that in the early uh, years they tried to get um, gay marriage on as many ballots as possible because they knew that would drive out conservative votes. And now it seems like Democrats are trying to get abortion on the ballot as much as possible because they know that will drive out um, more progressive votes. And so every time there is a uh, abortion issue on the ballot, it really does really um, drive, from my view at least, drive folks more from the left to the polls. And uh, so polling doesn't look great for Biden, but he's got to be uh, reassured by some of the election results so far. Especially if you look at polling right now uh, for Democrats more broadly, I, I was just looking it up and, and Brown is doing pretty well in Ohio compared to um, Republican alternatives. It's pretty remarkable. Yes. A lot of these incumbent senators are stronger than people think. You know, they they live in the state. They're They're going back there all the time. Sherrod Brown in particular, the image of him is with his sleeves rolled up and his tie loosened and he's talking to every constituent at the town hall. I mean, he's a hard worker and Ohioans respect that. Same thing with John Tester. He's kind of got that rednecky, he's got the crew cut, he's, you know, wearing have all jeans his fingers. all the time. Yeah, he's, he's lost some fingers in uh, various farming accidents or something. Uh, so it's there's some genuineness there that really does come through. Yeah, no, that's. I think a lot of folks are just focusing on the uh, Trump v. Biden, but there's a lot of nuance to the uh, to the, the Senate races, and that I think are really going to have a huge impact. 
not just on on just legislation, but even just on the vice president's travel moving forward. Because <laughs> right. yeah, Kamala Harris just didn't leave for the first uh, two years the Biden administration. Um, in a in a way, in a way, she's a strength for Joe Biden because there's there are very few people who actually want Kamala Harris to be president. And so as long as she's the vice president standing, you know, standing next to him, he's going to get a lot of support, particularly from Democrats and even some independents, because they don't they don't necessarily trust her. But that that kind of implies stronger trust for Joe Biden. So in a way, the weak vice president helps the presidential candidate and the the incumbent. Yeah, it really is remarkable that she's one of the few um, Democrats uh, across the nation who has a lower approval rating than, than Joe Biden. But I imagine it seems like she's taken a, from my view at least, she's taken a different tack and sort of embraced her more progressive uh, background to a certain extent and um, and has come to her own. I, I, I don't want to uh, go on too much longer, so I guess I, I'll, I'll ask the one question I, I brought up at the top about a stat or figure that you think our our audience should know um whether it be about the race um the presidential race gov primary or elections moving forward do you have any do you have one for us yeah so in iowa on monday uh in the republican caucus there were about a hundred and ten thousand voters that is 15 percent one five 15 percent of republican voters in the state of iowa who got to decide the result. I know there's a very different approach to voting in Australia. And I think it's important we all remember that this, this is a very thin slice of a very small state, uh, just one party. And so we we should be careful extrapolating too much from the results in Iowa, just 15% of a very small state. And yes, the weather was bad, but in Iowa in the winter, the weather is always bad. I grew up right next to there. People are not afraid to drive in the snow. They are not afraid. That will not deter them. So that was a that was a low turnout because people were not energized by the candidates. And remember, it's just it's a very tiny segment of the real voting age population. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Les. That was a lot of fun. And um, hopefully we can uh, do this again in the uh, races coming up. Thanks, Jared. Great to be with you. As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. We have the CEO, Mike Green. He's co-host of the Asia Chessboard podcast with Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair for China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'd also recommend checking out the USC Live podcast series that runs recordings from our major live events. You can find these on our brand new website, usc.edu.au, or wherever you get your podcasts.